When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I've got another great episode today. As always, I, I look for book topics that fascinate me, and <laughs> any chance to head across the Atlantic Ocean is a journey I'm always excited to take. So I, I'm pleased to have as my guest today Kate Winkler Dawson. She's a documentary producer, a news writer, and TV news producer. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Fox News Channel, PBS NewsHour, and other media outlets. She teaches journalism at the University of Texas, Austin. Her book, Death in the Air, The True Story of a Serial Killer, The Great London Smog, and the Strangling of a City is our subject today, and it's a pretty incredible one. Thanks for joining me today to talk about your book. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate you having me. I've got to ask you off the bat, what prompted you to write a book about not only the Great London Smog, but also about serial killer John Reginald Christie? Well, it was sort of an accident. So, you know, I ran across the story. I was surfing the Internet. I like to go on, you know, Getty and Associated Press and look at the photos of just historic events. And so I saw the really beautiful, striking photo of the woman with a scarf across her face um, during the Great Smog and, you know, which turned out to be the cover of my book. And I read a little bit about the smog. It was in the caption. And I realized no one had done the story before, which I thought was pretty incredible. And so uh, trying to find characters. So this is, you know, narrative nonfiction. So when I say characters, these are real people who appear in the book. Um, but I just call them characters. So when I was searching for the people who are going to be in the book, um, I located a politician who's sort of the protagonist in the book, uh, who takes on the conservative government in Britain uh, to you know, have um, a Clean Air Act finally enacted. And I was searching through the Times of London archives, New York Times archives, 
1953, which is a few months after the, the smog happened. And I was looking for my politician's um, debates, anything, anywhere where he appeared. And I kept seeing around March of 1953, I kept seeing these stories, these headlines, um, you know, like the beast of Rillington place and fourth body found and skeletons in the garden, which would intrigue anyone who's a true crime fan like I am. So I started reading about um, the um, serial killer, John Reginald Christie, but it was interesting because I was so intrigued by the story, but it's so incredibly frustrated because the fog had all but disappeared from the newspaper headlines. And, you know, being um, it currently in journalism, I think that really struck a, a chord with me because I feel like that's what's happening now. You know, we have um, a national conversation about, you know, what I think are very important issues, North Korea, um, sort of the dismantling of the EPA. I mean, really huge national stories that impact people. And if we get one um, dramatic or, you know, insensitive or um, or a really inappropriate tweet from a well-known politician, the conversation's completely disrailed. And I think that that's exactly what happened in the 1950s is, you know, you had a story about 12,000 people dead from the world's deadliest air pollution disaster. And here we are, um, you know, over the summer of 1953, approaching another fog. And yet what's leading the headlines virtually every day is a serial killer on trial for killing six people. So to me, it became a conversation of, OK, you know, why is this more important? A serial killer who's no longer a threat um, versus a smog that would very likely kill thousands more the following year. So it was intriguing to me because I do think it's what's happening now also. Absolutely. Could you set the scene for us? Tell us what life was like for a Londoner in 1952, the political, socioeconomic, and, and cultural climate of the city? Sure. So 1952 is a seven years after the end of World War II. So uh, the country was bankrupt. The conservative government, which was led by Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who of course was a hero from World War II, um, the conservative government was trying to cover up the fact that it was bankrupt from World War II. And uh, the city was literally shell-shocked. It was still in recovery. There were remnants of buildings across the city that, that were never able to be rebuilt after the Blitz. Unemployment was fairly high. Crime was fairly high. Um, and because of the economic issues, the police force was at an all-time low. It was a difficult city to live in for many people. Um, unless you were, of course, up at the upper echelon of, of um, the economy. Uh, in most areas of the city, people really struggled with being underemployed. Um, and so it was uh, environmentally a very difficult city to live in. So this is uh, the city with the uh, highest popula population in the world at the time. It's the most industrialized city in the world at the time. And it's a city that is run by coal. So that is the primary source of heat. It's the only economically feasible source of heat. And you had just an incredible amount of sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, and uh, other poisons pumped into the air daily because of millions of vehicles on the streets. Um, you had more than 8 million fireplace grates that were burning very, very cheap coal that was now being sold by the government because all of the expensive coal was shipped overseas because of the, you know, a bankrupt government. 
And you have more than 40 coal-fired power plants just in the city of London. And the city had just derailed its uh, electric tram system. And the electric trams, which of, course would have, which of course would have been relatively clean fuel, were replaced by those beautiful double-decker buses, the red double-decker buses that are sort of iconic in London. And these were uh, buses that were powered by diesel. So an awful lot of poison that's pumped into the air. And when this um, weather phenomenon settled over London for five days and trapped all of these pollutions and pollutants in the air, it resulted in, in thousands of deaths. And so there was no national emergency, which I thought was incredible. Um, you know, I, this was sort of par for the course, part of living in an industrialized city like London. And of course, London's known for fog and known for smog. So it was another byproduct of being in the city of London. So, you know, it was sort of stiff upper lip and carry on after the, the smog ended. And I really do think, I mean, you're talking about people who survived World War One, then World War Two, and the Blitz. I think the attitude was certainly let's move forward. So the people of London were just going through their days stoically, wearing masks, but, but still facing the smog head on stiff upper lip, etc. Yes. I mean, so essentially through the five days of the great smog, the first and the second day, which would be the Friday and the Saturday, um, the smog was really building. The height of it would have been Sunday and Monday. So on Saturday uh, or on, on Friday, rather, Parliament was still in session. Uh, the trains and the buses were still running, but the, the smog was really thickening and it was really starting to make people sick. So by Saturday, the tube was running very slowly, but it was still trying to stay on schedule. And there were people who certainly were venturing out. But Scotland Yard uh, on the BBC radio reported, you know, please stay inside. They saw a, a pretty large uptick in crime, but honestly, the, the criminals were facing the same issues that the police officers were, which is they couldn't see anything. You know, one of the, the people who appears in my book um, is, a, is a police officer named Stanley Crichton, and he talks about sticking your arm out as you're walking through the, sea, the streets, and it, it virtually disappears um, at your elbow in this gray, yellow malaise that it's just sort of a nightmare. So there were an awful lot of people who just decided to stay in. And there was a big danger there because um, if you were sickly, if you had respiratory issues that like many people did in London, um, you know, this is a city where 80 percent of the people smoked in 1952. So if you had respiratory issues and you stayed home alone during the smog, you know, you could see why 12,000 people died and they died alone. And so it was a it was a sort of a mixed bag. So you had criminals out in the streets, but at the same time, they were slowed down. Also, you had police sort of writhing in chaos, trying to find these criminals and try to respond to emergency phone calls. Uh, but, you know, really areas of the city that would have been um uh, run down by by shoppers on a Saturday or Sunday were were really empty, uh, you know. And this, the, the serial killer in this book, John Reginald Christie, for about the first third of the book, is, is really just another Londoner trying to make his way through this fog. He decided on the second day of the fog to to go to work, and he resigned and didn't tell his wife. And we find out a few days later, you know, he killed his wife. 
And so um, it's a it's a it's a time period where there's there's chaos, but people really tried to try to stay home and stay out of it. Uh, but, you know, a lot of employers on Saturday, the second day of the fog, still required people to come in. So it was um, a very stressful time. So your book is set up in an interesting way, uh, similar to, to Devil in the White City, where you've got two stories running parallel to each other and intersecting every so often. You've talked a little bit about the Great London Smog, but I, I'd like to ask you about the other part of your tale revolving around John Reginald Christie. He's a really interesting, compelling <laughs> strange character. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to to start by asking you about his early background. Can, can you talk about how he grew up? Sure. He grew up in a working class area outside of London. And, um, you know, he, he had what I think many people would consider sort of the typical Victorian upbringing, uh, which was a very, very strict father, probably bordering on physical abuse who made his children walk, you know, in, in perfect formation to church for several miles. And, you know, he really uh, was a was a disciplinarian. And John Christie's mother uh, was smothering, uh, a little overbearing. And then he had four sisters who were incredibly overbearing. So, you know, he sort of faded into the background, I think, for much of his childhood. He was very intelligent. He liked to take things apart and put them back together. And uh, he was a Boy Scout. You know, he uh, was really uh, devoted to the church where uh, he, he essentially grew up. But as he got older, things started going awry for him. And he was sort of socially awkward, partially, I'm sure, because of his background. Um, and when he started to um, explore uh, sex with women, with girls um, in his teenage years, he didn't perform particularly well. The girls made this very vocal to other people, uh, which of course shamed him, embarrassed him and, and made him really bitter. So you combine that with seeing his grandfather's body at his grandfather's funeral, um, as, you know, this, this sort of dead body who's just laying there inanimate and, he was fascinated by it. So these two somehow strangely combined as he got older, he became more antisocial and sort of more remote. Even though he got married, he had a, a really difficult time making connections with people. So um, when he was in World War One, he had enlisted. He was gassed with yellow gas and um, he lost part of his voice. He became sort of squeaky. He had already sort of this, uh, uh, people described his his walk as sort of a, an effeminate bounce. And he wasn't particularly good looking. So like, all of this you can imagine adds up to uh, a man who's, who's pretty repressed, unsatisfied with his life. Um, he was sort of nondescript. Uh, but, you know, as he sort of turned into this predator, he, it really lent uh, it really did him a service, all of these things, because he really did fade into the background. He was never considered a threat. And where he lived, which was Notting Hill, is now very posh. But in the 50s, it was um, sort of a ghetto, not a, not a good area, high crime, a lot of prostitution and gambling. So you know, the women he approached and convinced to come back to his flat – he was not such a bad option considering all of the other uh, men who were 
thugs and abusive in that area. So it really worked to his advantage that he just seemed like a weak person. So that sort of wraps him up. I, I mean, I hate to, to use the sort of overused cliche of the serial killer being quiet and reserved and kept to himself, but that really was who he was, um, very socially awkward. And then when he uh, finally became this, the, it's really internationally known celebrity, it, and particularly in London, um, it sort of satisfied this need that he always had uh, that he had never received, which is attention. And in, and in his way, I think he thought it was positive attention. So it's difficult to figure out really when the tide turned for him. He had an affair um, and and uh, in the middle of this affair, something really snapped with him and he strangled the woman um, during sex. And, and then after that, he, he he had enjoyed that feeling. And after that, he actually plotted out um, how to seduce his future victims. So it was just a really it was like sort of this perfect storm of things happening at the same time um, that that really resulted in this murder spree. But even before he began this this murder spree, he, he had a bit of a criminal record early on, right? He did. You know, he was never considered particularly violent. Uh he did a lot of stupid, silly things, a little embezzlement here. He stole letters when he worked for the Postal Service. Um, he dated a woman. He and his wife separated for several years, for about a decade. And he dated a woman who was a single mother. And she just got tired of, of him refusing to find a job. And they got into an argument. And he whacked her with a cricket bat, which is sort of a flat baseball bat. He whacked her on the back of the head. He said he was... <laughs> He said he was taking a practice swing, which I'm sure he's not the first person to have used that excuse. Uh, but that was really the first time he had, had actually been violent. And this was before he started killing people. Uh, and even what's so interesting is even when he did kill women, um, he always had to disable them first. So this is where the coal gas came in. He convinced them to breathe this uh, mixture into their um, lungs that was sort of, you know, um, it was sort of like a menthol um, gas where, the, you know, it could really uh, cure whatever ailed them if they had asthma from fog. And he mixed it with coal gas and they didn't notice and they became disabled. And then he always used like a rope or pantyhose um, to strangle them because he was physically weak. He always had problems. He always had back issues or arm issues. I mean, he really was sort of stricken constantly with different ailments. So he is interesting. He is not the boogeyman who hides in a closet and jump out and, 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 you know, overpowers his victim. He had some pretty big drawbacks and he was smart enough to figure out ways to do what he wanted, get what he wanted um, and and sort of utilize his brains instead of his brawn. Which isn't admirable in any way. It is fascinating, though. Oh, for sure. And there were lots of war widows in London during this time for him to prey on, weren't there? Right. And he really did what many serial killers do, contemporary killers do now, which is he focused on people who wouldn't be missed. So he had every woman, with the exception of his wife, who he killed was either pregnant or or 
you know, had children who were being raised by their families. And many of them were, were part-time prostitutes, you know, that, that was just part of London um, after the war. Was just the, the employment was difficult to find, good employment, good steady employment was difficult. And, and as I said before, he was in Notting Hill, which was a um, really bad economically um, disadvantaged, you know, a lot of disenfranchised people lived there. And so, you know, John Redder Christie, this, this weak man, um, didn't seem like a big threat. So he really did. It was a, an advantageous time for him to choose to do this. But because of the large number of, of soldiers killed in the war, there were fewer men for him to compete with, right? Right. And the ones who he did compete with were pretty ticked off. Um, they were unhappy, you know, in this area. They were repressed. And so, you know, as I said before, he really um, had some extra money. He had a good government job. His wife was frequently out of town visiting her sister. And so he really had a lot of advantages that the other men in that area didn't have. And he just didn't seem like a, a threatening person at all. So it was, you know, he, he had, he was able to convince women to come back to his flat, um, without very much difficulty if he had something to offer them, which was frequently alcohol or, or money. So it's 1943 when he commits his first murder, right? Right. Can you talk about the circumstances leading up to that murder? So he uh, became friends with a woman in the area who was a part-time prostitute named Ruth First, and she was um, a, a woman who had children who were being raised by her family, and she was sort of working the area. And at the time, he was a war police constable, so it's in the middle of World War II. And he always wore this uniform, which, of course, probably most people know usually um, makes you look a little more handsome. And he patrolled this area in Notting Hill and they met at a snack bar and they and they talked a lot and they had an affair. So when his wife, Ethel, would visit her sister in Sheffield outside of the city, he would bring Ruth back to the flat and they would have sex. And he says that she was getting too serious too quickly and and she really wanted him to leave his wife you know now who knows that at this point when john christie is telling this story to a reporter for the sunday pictorial you know he has a pretty grandiose view of of himself so i, I don't know how much ruth first was really in love with him regardless they retired to his bedroom one night when his wife was gone and began to have sex and he reached over and and grabbed a rope and strangled her and enjoyed the experience. Now, in the in the middle of this whole thing, when he's trying to figure out, oh, man, you know, I have a body here. What do I do? He gets a telegram. There's a telegram boy at his door. He hands him a telegram from his wife who says, I'm coming home early and I'm bringing my brother. And so this, you know, kind of creates a panic and a scramble. And so, you know, the the way that he covers up the body is quite creepy and um, and then, you know, he transfers the body eventually to its final resting place. And you know, it's the start of really very many odd circumstances about this case. Um, he, you know, buried two women in the back garden and buried, buried them so shallowly that the dog was able to dig up bones, you know, later on, several years later. And he really just sort of disregarded these women 
Um, and their remains, there was certainly not, nothing sacred about them. He planted, you know, flowers right above them. And, uh, he picked up, I think one of the strangest things he did was when his dog unearthed the femur bone of one of the women, he took the bone and strapped it to, um, part of his fence that was falling down as a way to reinforce the fence, like another post you would go by. And, um, you know, the, the, at some point the Notting Hill police came and searched the area looking for a different woman and they walked right by this bone, you know, strapped to the fence. So it's sort of this incredible, <laughs> these incredible circumstances where he cared enough to cover up his crime. So he wasn't a psychopath. He was a sociopath. He, he knew that what he did was wrong and he worked very actively to cover up his crimes. But then he just sort of had this flagrant disregard for, um, staying safe. I mean, who in the right mind would take a femur bone and put it against their fence? I mean, he did so many things like that. It was just so odd. So those were the circumstances that really, that really taught him that he enjoyed, um, the power over women, but he really did have to have them disabled. I mean, he could not perform usually unless it was with a prostitute or as, as he found out if they were completely, um, disabled and, and, and not able to move and then he could do what he wanted. So it's an interesting, he was an interesting killer for sure. So the following year in 1944, he kills another woman named Muriel Edie. It was, was somewhat similar to the Ruth first murder, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, this is where he his method really begins and he starts honing his skills. You know, I, I say this in the book. Serial killers aren't born serial killers. They start and they improve, you know, their methods. And, and this is really what he did. He targeted her. They worked together. She didn't need anything from him. She wasn't a prostitute. She had a full time job. She had a boyfriend. She had money. Uh, but she had this cough from, you know, kind of constant upper, upper respiratory, um, infections from smoking, most likely, but also from the constant smogs that were happening. And he said, I have a cure for that at my flat. You know, I have this breathing apparatus. It'll get rid of it quickly. I'm assuming it was sort of like an asthma. He was presenting it as sort of like an asthma, um, inhaler. And she agreed. He had groomed her for months and she, she had, he had even had lunch, you know, with Muriel and her boyfriend at the same time. And so this was, you know, she felt very safe. His wife was out of town again and, and she come, came to the flat and, uh, he tried to give her something to drink and she really didn't want anything to drink. So, uh, he sat her down in this chair in a deck chair and there was a glass jar that had a tube running from it and it had Friar's balsam, which is, I think, sort of like a, you know, a menthol, what you would might rub on your chest, but you know, in a, in a gas form. And he said, breathe through the tube. This will clear out your lungs. And she did. And apparently she didn't realize that there was another tube that led from the glass jar to his gas tap at the back of his stove. And so um, when the, he released the bull clip uh, on that tube and all the gas came through, she was knocked out and he sexually assaulted her and strangled her with rope. And, and that, and that really was his MO from, from then on with the exception of killing his wife. That's essentially was, was what um, 
what was what the method was that worked the best for him. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Was, or call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So he he gets away with these murders, at least for the time being. His life continues on, but he eventually becomes tangled up in another set of murders, these revolving around a man named Timothy Evans. Mm -hmm. Incredibly tragic. But Christie, while a part of this case, is not involved in the way we'd expect him to be, considering his prior history. Can you explain what happened in the spring of 1949 and how he became a part of these murders? Sure. So to um, catch you up, at this point, he has killed two women. Nobody knows about them. He's buried them in the backyard. And he's continued to see prostitutes. But, you know, his wife goes through phases where she travels and then she doesn't. And he really um, can't do anything unless she leaves. So she's at he's at her whim, essentially. So um, he doesn't kill anyone until, well, it's debatable, but at about 1949, um, a couple moves into the building, um, young couple. Timothy Evans is the husband, and he's married to a woman named Burl, who's 19, and Timothy Evans is 22, 23. And then they have a, um, a newborn baby named Geraldine, 
And for about a year, they live on the top floor and uh, a, a single older man pensioner lives on the middle floor. And then Christy and his wife live on the bottom floor. And Christy and Ethel didn't particularly care for Timothy Evans. They thought he was a drunk. They thought he was violent. He was abusive. He had affairs. Um, they liked the little girl. And actually, Ethel would babysit for her sometimes when Burl would, would go and, and try to work. So in, uh, 19, in 1950, or I guess right at uh, about 1949, um, Timothy Evans travels to Wales at the end of the year and goes to um, a police station and says, I killed my wife and my daughter. And I put him down the drain at the front of my building, Tim Millington Place. And the police called in Wales, called the Metropolitan Police um, at Notting Hill and, and send a whole group of them over. And so John uh, Christie is sort of awoken by some some pretty vicious banging of metal right outside of his door. And he comes out and they're trying to get this this storm drain lid open because they think there's a, a, a woman and a child down there. He wants to know what's happening, and they sort of explain, listen, your neighbor confessed to killing his wife and his child. And, you know, Christy says, I don't know anything about any of this. But, of course, he's a little stressed out because they start tromping around the backyard. And, meanwhile, he's got two women buried back there, but no one knows it. So this is not a easygoing time for John Christie. So they don't find Burl and the little girl down the storage drain. They look everywhere, and despite some pretty serious missteps, um, they finally locate Burl and the little girl inside of the wash house in the backyard. This happens to be the same wash house where John Christie stored very temporarily the two women who he buried in the backyard. So... Um, at this point, Timothy Evans, who has been presented with, you know, photographs of his wife and his little girl, um, who had been wrapped up sort of like mummies in this wash house, says, you know what, I didn't do this. My neighbor, John Christie, didn't, I didn't do it. And no one believes him. And he confesses and then recants and confesses. So he does this three times where, where nobody believes him. He's a liar. None of his stories work. When he does confess, the stories don't make sense. And then when he recants, the story doesn't make sense. So the prosecutor asks John Christie to testify against Timothy Evans during this murder trial. And Christie agrees and says, this, you know, he was abusive, which he was, and he was having affairs and he threatened to kill her. And he's just not a good man. So Timothy Evans is eventually convicted of killing his wife and his little girl. And the last thing he says is, I didn't do it. Um, John Christie did it. But it doesn't matter. He's he's been hanged. And um, now you flash forward two years later during the Great Smog of 1952. No one has died since then. So if if Christie has not killed his upstairs neighbor's wife and little girl, he hasn't killed anyone since 1944. So, you know, uh, eight years later during the smog, um, he resigns from his job. And then three days later, he kills his wife. And then he goes on a, on a killing spree after that. And once they start discovering the bodies in the house, obviously the police and the public start putting this together and say, uh, we probably executed the wrong man because how could there be two killers living in the same house at the same time? And eventually John Christie confessed to killing uh, Burl Evans and Geraldine Evans. His confession made no sense. 
Um, it was very confusing. It was actually physically impossible. And uh, later on, he admitted that his attorney convinced him to confess to pretty much everything under said. I mean, really, if Kennedy had been shot at this point, he would have confessed to that, too, because he was hoping, you know, to be deemed insane and then his life would have been saved. But he said, no, I didn't. I don't kill kids and I would never have done that. So this has been a controversial case for decades and decades and um, it's still a big question mark about what happened. I mean, these are two men who at times were both very violent. They both had sort of motives for killing women. Um, and I think that, you know, going on the assumption that there can't be two killers in the same building is very, very naive because a, a serial killer is an anomaly and one thing. But a serial killer whose neighbor in 1952 Notting Hill um, gets drunk and snaps and kills his wife when he's already demonstrated a aptitude for violence isn't to me surprising at all. I, it wasn't shocking when I read about the case, but I think it's still shocking to many people. How, how were Burl and Geraldine killed? They were both strangled. And I know <laughs> it is a coincidence. There's so many... Um, Parts of these cases where they overlap, um, and it's very confusing. There's so much evidence I lay out in the book. I think in, in sort of a cohesive way, there are a few key things that you, that you hone in on. I think one of the, the most obvious, the strike against John Christie is the strangling. Um, uh, there's no physical evidence that, that actually either one of them killed Burl and, and Geraldine. It, 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 there's no, you know, fingerprints. It just no, none of that was really possible um, with the material that was used. So they were strangled with um, one was uh, uh, Burl was strangled with a rope. Geraldine was strangled with a necktie and neither man admitted it was his necktie. Um, Geraldine or, or Burl had no uh, carbon monoxide in her lungs, which is what was found in all the other victims with the exception of the wife. Um, Ethel. So that again goes against Christie's method. And the, the, one of the main issues, one of the sort of keystone cops moments, as I call them, which were there were many in this case, was that the pathologist was told to not do um, a rape kit on Burl Evans because the husband had already confessed. If he had, he might have found, you know, sperm. And that might have indicated that that John Christie had been present because that was his sole purpose was, um, you know, to sexually assault women with the exception of his wife, who didn't sexually assault. Uh, but he did that, obviously, as a way to sort of get her out of the way. It was a necessity for him. So we don't know if Burl was sexually assaulted on the autopsy. They said it was sort of inconclusive. And uh, we do know that she didn't have any carbon monoxide in her lungs, which, again, would have been um, sort of counterintuitive for Christie to, to go back on that method. I think for me, the biggest part of the evidence that that it that doesn't line up with Christie, I think, is that the pathologist took photos and made notes. And I have the, the photos from um, Burl's original autopsy and the. She was hit in the face, punched in the face so hard that her upper lip was so swollen it touched the tip of her nose. That's a hard hit. And the pathologist said 
um, that he estimated that this hit happened within 20 minutes of her death. So 20 minutes before she died. And I sent the photo to two pathologists who I know, and they looked in, and they said, based on the photo, without seeing the body in person, that seemed about right. So to me, it makes absolutely no sense for Burl Evans to allow John Christie, her neighbor, who she doesn't know very well, to punch her in the face, to stay quiet for 20 minutes, and then to be strangled. To me, it makes more sense that an abusive husband hits her in the face, which he had done before. They continue to argue. And then he strangles her. So that's one of the kind of the bigger keys for me. But it, it, it's a mystery. You know, they were both liars. They were both violent. They both confessed and recanted. Um, so, you know, we, we just will never really know the truth. And there are some that think they acted together in this, right? But, but in, in hindsight, it, it doesn't really seem likely. It's ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. You know, I think that when when you have killers who work in unison, you know, um, they have to have a very special trusting relationship and neither man liked one another. I mean, they just really didn't. And, and there was a judge in the 1960s and 66 who was asked to head an inquiry again um, into this case. And the judge um, said that he believed that Burl was killed by Timothy Evans, but that the little girl was killed by John Christie. Which makes absolutely no sense. I mean, it's hard enough to believe that that without a rape kit or evidence of rape, that he would have had any motivation to kill Burl Evans to begin with. But it, it doesn't make any sense to me that he killed um, a little girl. His attorney tried to get him to confess to killing a teenager in Windsor um, when John Christie hadn't even been in Windsor at the time. And he said, no, I don't kill kids. And I and I believe that. I mean, they had had. Uh, helped babysit um, Geraldine in the past, and he could have taken her to any number of churches and just left her on the doorstep if he wanted to get rid of her. So, uh, yeah, those theories are really confusing. They, they don't, to me, make any sense. I just don't see how either of them would have worked with the other one because I think that their motives were different. I mean, if you look at people who work together on murders, they usually have the same motive, the, you know, the same aesthetic, um, the same drive. And and these two men had very different motives for killing um, Burl Evans. So not long after this, and this happens, as you mentioned, around 1949, 1950, Christie's wife, Ethel, her health begins to deteriorate, doesn't it? Can, can you talk about their relationship at this point and, and how it continues through 1951 and 1952? up to when Christie kills her? Well, you know, again, it's speculation, but I think there's an awful lot of evidence that leads me to believe why he ended up killing Ethel. So, uh, you know, after the Christie or after uh, Christie testified against Timothy Evans and Evans was executed in 1950, Christie's health really started to deteriorate. I mean, he had intestinal issues. He had issues with flatulence. He had back issues. I mean, he really was starting to sort of physically fall apart. He was in his 40s at this point. And his wife, who was slightly older than he was and sort of this, you know, heavy set woman who had never been in, in, um, in good health to begin with, her uh, arthritis really uh, started to worsen, 
And she was less inclined to travel. She didn't go see her sister as often, which of course, of course, eliminated um, a place for Christy to bring back women. And so I think he was getting slightly um, some cabin fever in 52. He started seeing a pair of prostitutes whom he never had sex with. He had photography sessions with where they simulated sex and he fancied himself an amateur photographer and he liked to keep a very small photo lab in the neighborhood. And so he frequently asked them to come and take these photos. And he did this on the first day of the smog, which was a Friday, um, of December 5th. And he was then stuck at home with his wife for five days with the exception of the day he ventured out onto the tube to resign from his job. So he clearly made a very conscious decision that her death was, was imminent. And I think it was um, also a tremendous amount of stress for both of them because the demographic in Notting Hill had changed fairly dramatically at the uh, beginning of 1950. There was a, a large influx um, in the late 40s and early 50s. And then this continued of people, Caribbean people, people from the West Indies coming over who had fought on behalf of the British government in World War II and were invited to come. And um, when the economy didn't quite recover, it with the, the amount of people who had, who had arrived created, you know, this sort of um, system of ghettos. There were an awful lot of um, houses where white landlords would would you know try to rent multiple multiple um to multiple people in in very small spaces and it just created you know a, a really negative effect and a lot of racial tension and so in the 1940s Tin Rollington Place was white and there was you know the Evanses were on the top floor there was a single man on the middle floor and then Christie on the bottom and by you know 1951 1952 there were upwards of eight to ten um, residents from the West Indies who were shoved into Tin Rillington Place and the Christies were on the bottom. And they were in a sort of constant war with them. And, you um, know, actually, after Christie killed his wife, he put her under the floorboards of his parlor and, um, we, you know, continually try to put down sort of Lysol uh, disinfectants to, to stop the smell of a decomposing body from wafting out onto the street and to his neighbors. And a police officer came in and commented on the smell. And he said, well, I have these neighbors and they, you know, cook horrible food. And, and the, and the police officer believed him. So it created an awful lot of racial tension, obviously not just in their building, but just, you know, throughout the city. And Ethel was, incredibly upset over the state of the building and you know you know she considered her neighbors to be unkempt and trashy and dangerous and I think it just it aided in her declining health which just increased John Christie's stress because you know there's nothing worse for a serial killer than to be sort of habitually stuck with your wife in the only place where you're able to kill women. So this was distressing for him also. I think it just created this sort of, you know, um, perfect storm of tension and stress that eventually needed to be released 
And unfortunately for Ethel Christie, it was released on her a few days after the smog lifted. So between January and March 1953, Christie murders three more women. Mm-hmm. Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson, and Hectorina McLennan. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through each murder, how he he met them, what he did to them, and are the, the circumstances of their deaths similar? They are. I mean, it's sort of a rinse and repeat with these three women. They were prostitutes. Um, they were found with a, a large amounts of alcohol in their system. He met them in the neighborhood, and it, he's, the same thing with all of them. He mustered up as much charm as he was able to. And again, with a sort of uh, non-threatening manner, convinced them that he had money, that they could come back to the flat. He could make some money and have a uh, they could make some money and and he would have um, provide them with a warm place to stay. He even offered one of them Ethel's clothing after he killed Ethel, his wife. So he really was doing everything he possibly could to convince women to come back to the flat. And so when he would lure them back. He would offer them alcohol and then he would uh, convince them for however, you know, many reasons he, he needed to breathe in this carbon monoxide solution because every one of them had that gas in their lungs when they were found and it still, you know, it stayed present and it was a very high level. So they were drunk and they were disabled by this, um, you know, this goal, this, uh, coal gas apparatus that he had set up. But it really was the same circumstances. He would have um, ha- uh, have them sort of pass out. He would sexually assault them. He would strangle them. And with the, the final three women who you mentioned between January and March of 1953, he sort of um, shoved them, all three of them, um, after he would kill them, he would shove them into an abandoned coal cupboard that was in his kitchen and he essentially wallpapered over he put a temporary wall over this cupboard to cover them up so if you're keeping up with the count you got two women from the 19 early 1940s who are buried in his backyard you have ethel um christy his wife who is under the floorboards of the parlor and then you have these three women who are wallpapered into his kitchen and this is not a large flat so he is surrounded by dead bodies at this point. So the, the count is up to six. And then if you are assuming that he killed Burl and uh, Geraldine, then the count is up to eight. And after he kills his final victim, he um, has run out of money. He has sold everything he could possibly sell. He sold his wife wedi- wife's wedding ring. Um, and he knows he's going to get kicked out, evicted from this flat. He didn't get along with the landlord to begin with. And so he – this is a, another example of the audacity of John Reginald Christie's mind. So he sublets his apartment illegally. He brings in a couple, shows them around with these bodies laying around, you know, um, and says, you know, give me this amount of money and you can sublet it and, and don't worry, everything will be fine. So they give him the money and he disappears and they show up the next day and start to move in. And they are immediately evicted that day by the landlord who says, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we rented this room from John Christie, who's now gone. So the landlord says, in the meantime, you need to leave. And he tells a neighbor 
um, who was, you know, one of the Caribbean people in, on uh, one of the upper floors. If you would like to cook in the kitchen, you may. This apartment needs to be cleaned up and sort of renovated, and then we're going to rent it out because the occupants are now gone. And so the man, you know, um, comes into the kitchen, and he wants to hang up a uh, wireless radio so that he could cook and listen to the news or to music at the same time. And he starts banging around um, on the walls, probably trying to find a stud that's appropriate to hang this radio, and it's hollow. And he sort of punches a hole through and he sees the bodies. And that's the end of uh, John Christie's charade as this sort of meek, you know, man who blends into the wallpaper and he's officially on the run. And he becomes the most sensationalized news story in 20 years, at least in London. It's, you know, one of the beginnings of the the celebrity killer. What a horror show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, it, it's interesting that, that he buries the first two bodies outside in the backyard, but then he, he buries his wife under the floorboards. I mean, what's his, his motivation for that? And, and continuing to try and mitigate the smell, wouldn't it have just made more sense to, to bury all the bodies in the backyard? It, it, well, as you know, killers don't frequently have a lot of common sense. That's why they're caught, thank goodness. However, I think um, what what it made more sense to me, where I and I in his position is, you know, the two in the backyard, Ruth and Muriel, were killed during World War II. In the middle of it, there were plenty of houses that had been bombed out where all he needed to do was take their body in the middle of the night and dump them, and nobody would have been able to identify them, and certainly they wouldn't have been able to connect them to John Christie. The only reason they were able to connect him. Uh, to their bodies is because they were in his backyard, obviously. Uh, I think that there are killers who just inherently want to keep people close um, and, and their victims close. And I think, uh, to me, the evidence of that, besides the fact that, you know, he was either too lazy to take the bodies anywhere, not smart enough to figure out where to put the bodies, or what I think is more likely is he wanted the trophies. He wanted them as trophies. And the evidence I have of that is um, one of the police officers who is uh, someone who is, is he just passed away recently at the age of 101, Lynn Trevelyan, um, later became a sort of a war hero. But during Christie's time, he um, was a police officer who uh, had officers working under him who were working on the Christie case. And he was told to bring his officers to 10 Millington place because they were finding bodies. And so he instructed his officers to go out to the back garden and dig around because they had already found two skeletons and they were wondering if there were any more buried out there. And um, Trevelyan noticed a gold leaf tobacco tin, which was a kind of a copper bright tin laying on one of the mounds. And there was a lot of trash in this yard. I mean, this really was, they were finding animal bones and of cows, of dogs, of cats. I mean, they really were finding a lot of stuff in his backyard along with rubbish that the neighbors had dumped into the garden. And so Trevelyan notices this, this, um, this little copper tin and he walks out he picks it up and he opens it up and there is four to seven to maybe up to 10 tufts of pubic hair that had been snipped. And this was Christie's trophy. And he had done that with his wife. 
and had said he had done it with several of the victims. And this was the, the this was an idea of the prosecutor to try to maybe connect Christie with Burl Evans, um, that perhaps if they could identify her hair in that tin, that would be the proof that Timothy Evans was um, wrongly executed. But there was no evidence that 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 had happened. And so, you know, Christie's sort of penchant for keeping trophies um, leads me to believe that this was this was his way of keeping these women and these memories close to him. But it was so odd, I mean, to plant roses and and, you know, flowers above the victims and, you know, to have at one point he invited someone to spend the night and sleep on the floor right above another victim, you know, in the, in the floorboard. So it's a very, um, and then, you know, they have these subletters walking around. He was, took money so they would move in and then he walked off kind of into the sunset, hoping he would disappear. So I, a lot of what he does makes a lot of sense and is very smart, but there, yeah, there are obviously a lot of missteps that he took, but whatever he did, he killed people over a 10 year span and got away with it. So he obviously, um, he obviously was skilled at some areas of cover up. But he, he took advantage of a chaotic time, didn't he? And I'm sure the police were stretched thin. Right, very much. He was at the right place at the right time and, and took advantage of this. And he probably got away with this a lot longer than he should have, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mentioned to you that sort of many of the Keystone Cops moments, uh, sort of bungling of the Notting Hill Metropolitan Police, when they were searching all over 10 Rillington Place looking for Burl and Geraldine Evans, you know, on the instruction of, of, of Timothy Evans saying, I killed my wife and my child, go search. So when they searched, they went into the back garden and walked right past that femur bone that Christie had strapped to the fence. I mean, literally walked right past it through the fence gate. If they had just spotted that and had asked questions, then you have four people who would still have been alive. So his wife and the three women who he killed afterward, but they just never picked up on it. So they were walking over two women buried in the backyard. But it was on on a lot of trust. I mean, he was a war reserve police officer. He um, was, you know, they knew would testify in the case against um, Timothy Evans. He had been very open and willing to sit down and talk with the police about Timothy Evans and his um, background as an abusive husband. So, you know, they really had an awful lot of trust and not very much skepticism with John Christie. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, he being this government employee and a war reserve police officer and generally what seemed to be for the area an upstanding person. Right. So once they took Christie in, did, did they have an easy time coercing a confession out of him? Once they brought him in and he, you know, he he was very cagey with them. So what I mean by that is that he was very open about the first two, the women in the garden uh, of the circumstances. But the final women, the prostitutes at the very end, three women, he lied. He said he never sexually assaulted them. 
He said that they forced their way into his flat. Of course, you know, at different times he killed one kind of per month, essentially, uh, between March and, and between January and March, that they forced their way into his flat and he killed them out of self-defense, which, of course, is ridiculous. I mean, the pathology clearly showed that they had been gassed and poisoned and then sexually assaulted. Um, and then with his wife, he said that he did kill her, but it was essentially to put her out of her misery because she had accidentally overdosed on prescription barbiturates. And he woke up one morning to her gagging and choking. And he decided the best way to relieve her of this was not to call the police or an ambulance, but to strangle her with a pair of pantyhose. So um, on the other hand, there was this phenomena that I'm completely, as a journalist, fascinated by uh, called checkbook journalism that happened in the 1950s in London, where essentially these celebrity journalists who specialized in um, sensationalized crime stories for the local newspapers competed um, for exclusive stories from killers who were getting ready to go on trial. So in this case, Harry Proctor, who worked for the Sunday Pictorial, which is no longer um, in circulation, won. And he won Christie's exclusive confession. In exchange, the Sunday Pictorial essentially paid for Christie's defense, which I will tell you for all of your listeners who are um, not familiar with journalistic ethical practices is not ethical at all. So the confessions that were exclusive to the Sunday pictorial are incredible. I mean, it's really John Christie at his most glamorous and at his best. I mean, this is really a national and international stage for him to craft his story whatever way he wanted to and to become sort of the suave lady killer, literally, um, that he had always wanted to be. And, and no one ever cared for him or listened to him. And now all of a sudden there are women clamoring to meet him, uh, people begging to be in the courthouse. You know, he's getting incredible amounts of attention. And so um, he kept pictures of himself in his jail cell. I mean, it was really remarkable how things changed for him um, once he became this infamous serial killer. So, you know, as as with many criminals, they are unreliable sources but, you know, everything that Christie said certainly had a zing to it. But at its heart, everything was backed up factually from what he said. So, you know, he was honest about some things, but then certainly um, I don't think anybody believed that these last three women he killed because they threatened to overpower him. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So for all of these these murders he's committed, he, he's only tried for one, and that is the murder of his wife, right. Ethel. Right. Can, can you talk about that trial and the strategy of the defense, the strategy of the prosecution, and how things eventually turn out for him? Well, it's interesting. The prosecution was um, was really in a bad position because um, the defense kept trying to introduce the murder of Burl and Geraldine Evans into this trial. I mean, they were desperate to, you know, Christie confessed to killing them. Um, they wanted to bring them in. I think a couple of reasons. One is, is I think the defense really wanted to embarrass the prosecutor who had prosecuted this office had prosecuted Timothy Evans. So if they introduced the fact that, that, uh, you know, the crown had wrongfully executed, Another man, that was, of course, a strike against them, and, and maybe jurors would be less willing to believe um, whatever the prosecutor said at this point. But on top of that, I think they really were hoping for and eventually making an insanity plea because the defense attorney really was willing to do anything it took to, to save John Christie's life. And John Christie was willing to do that, too. You know, when he was a first arrested um, and he confessed to killing these women, which, you know, was irrefutable. They were in his house. And they were in his backyard. So he really couldn't deny it. There was too much evidence against him. But he could deny Burl Evans and, and killing Geraldine and Burl Evans. And he never mentioned them when he was first arrested and was giving all of these confessions. But after he had a meeting with his attorney, he went back and confessed to killing them. And so I think that this was he called it the more the merrier sort of the kitchen sink defense, which is you just confessed to everything under the sun. And so uh, it was really the prosecution uh, was really having a difficult time keeping Burl and Geraldine out of the trial. 
Uh, but I, I think eventually it's a very, it, even now, but certainly in the 50s, it was a very steep and windy road to get to um, someone being uh, deemed insane. I mean, there's an awful lot that that you have to prove in order to say that your defendant is insane. And they just weren't able to reach it. I think people thought that he was a sociopath before this phrase was even, you know, was was uh, coined. But I think it, at at some point it just became very clear that there wasn't much that could be done for Christie. So he just really relished the public attention while he could. And he didn't show much remorse either, did he? No, he didn't. I mean, he really, um, it switched really quickly, I think, from, um, you know, either he was either playing defense and saying, I I was, you know, uh, it was self-defense. These women were trying to attack me to when he talked about Ruth and Muriel who were buried in the backyard and he didn't deny killing them. It was very romantic when he described it and very glamorous. It was, you know, uh, he used phrase like a, I was determined to make the next one a very clever murderer, much more clever than the first. You know, it was very sort of gothic serial killer. So there was never any, yeah, I really made some mistakes. I think it was either, you know, I didn't do this at all or I didn't mean to do it. Or it was, you know, I am this brilliant sociopath and this is why, you know, you should obsess over me and admire me. But there was never any middle ground, really. So Christie is found guilty. He's sentenced to death. Can you talk about the days leading up to his execution and how he was finally killed? Well, he um, he I think had sort of a sort of as you would imagine, a, a shift of emotions sort of back and forth. He really tried to enjoy those last few weeks. Um, you know, as I said, he started pushing, putting pictures up of himself in prison. Um, he had an awful lot of people who were sending him mail, people, you know, uh, ministers asking him to, uh, um, believe in God and to let, allow them to come in and, and read religious documents with them. Um, and he had women write him. And um, so it really was this sort of bravado that he had never received before. But as the day grew closer and it became obvious that the execution was going to happen, um, he wrote a brief will where he left everything to one of his sisters and at the bottom, I thought that was very telling. At the bottom, he said, you know, essentially apologies for any inconveniences I've made of you. Um, and so he really had no one. And the journalist, Harry Proctor, um, who paid for his defense, made that a point that there was no one to give money to. He had killed his wife. He was estranged from his family, and so he they gave all the money to the defense attorney to pay for the defense because there was no one else. And so he was left alone, but much like the way he lived his life, you know, he was married, but he certainly had uh, so many antisocial characteristics that he was never able to be close to anyone uh, except animals. He really adored animals. So uh, as the date approached, he became, you know, very anxious and nervous 
And uh, he really just, it was sort of a, a fearful time and he was this kind of weakened man. So he didn't face the gallows bravely. It is an interesting note though, that the man, uh, Pierpont, who was a, the UK's most famous executioner, the man who executed him had also executed Timothy Evans. Uh, but there were thousands of people who came to watch this execution that stood outside the gates. They weren't able to see it, but they wanted to see the notice be put up when he was finally executed. It was just a media circus. It was remarkable. Interesting. Is there some metaphor here? Um, the smug finally clears. Christie is finally caught and killed. Does it say something about the city of London? I mean, I think that it says but any society even 65 years ago of, of this kind of stories that were fascinated by that are titillating. Um, I mean, it's sad to say that tabloid stories do seem to rule over stories of substance. And I think that's very true today. It is certainly more interesting to read a story about a clear and present danger, like a serial killer on the loose, than it is to read a story about, the environment that is a systemic problem that needs a solution that's going to take decades to solve. I mean, it's sort of common sense. You know, I mean, there's there are two drastically different stories, two very different killers that happened at the same time. And how we react to these stories tells a lot about us. And I'm afraid, you know, certainly like what happened 65 years ago and what's happening now doesn't say um, anything particularly positive about the sort of stories that we're attracted to and the issues that we're attracted to. Again, it doesn't seem to be very difficult for us on social media and certainly on networks and the newspapers to be pretty easily distracted and derailed um, from very serious conversations about national issues that are important but uh, are not sexy and not titillating or tantalizing or sensationalized in any way. So what is the quality of air in, in London now? How did things change after this? Well, eventually um, the UK passed the um, 1956 Clean Air Act, which was sort of the blueprint for other countries, including, including the United States, to follow. So it was a landmark sort of federal bill that required the British government to create smokeless zones where coal burning was not allowed. And so that was a tremendous boost for environmentalists, and it really did immediately take uh, have an effect on the, the city's quality of air. Of course, now the quality of air in London is dismal, and it's, of course, not because of coal. It's because of exhaust and fumes from all of the vehicles in, the, in a city that you know, has a high population of people. And, of course, we see that in many cities. Incredibly, um, in the United States, we have incredible amounts of pollution, and it's sort of isolated based on where you live. On the West Coast, it's primarily vehicles um, and exhaust from vehicles. And, you know, if, if we're talking about sort of the, the um, states of Kentucky or Virginia, it's primarily from coal plants that are there or various other plants that are there. So it's interesting, you know, the problem doesn't go away. It certainly does um, shift to a different energy source. And once Christie confessed, quote unquote, to, to the murder of Burl and Geraldine Evans, um, government officials began questioning themselves about the execution of Timothy Evans. And, and that had 
some effect on the death penalty in Britain, didn't it? Yes, it took a little while because, um, you know, there was uh, there were several inquiries. The most high profile inquiry was in the early 1960s. And it was spurred on by a book by a journalist um, that was entitled Ten Really Ten Place and was turned into a pretty high fo- uh, high profile movie. And um, this book, um, this journalist used the book to really be an advocate for abolishing the death penalty and and sort of the public outcry convinced the government to um, have another inquiry and. Um, eventually, this led to so much media attention that the British government um, abolished the death penalty completely. And it wasn't just because of the Timothy Evans case, but it was one of the main cases that led to the abolishment of the death penalty. So, you know, that is another reason why this story was so attractive to me, because, you know, there are a lot of weird, creepy killers out there who do strange things and cover up crimes in odd ways, obviously. Um, you know, I, I think I know many of those cases, but what makes this case different for me besides sort of the, the really interesting side by side comparison that I can make with the fog and with the serial killer is also that this case led to a landmark decision and it had impact and it created a conversation amid the controversy. So John Christie really did have a larger impact on just, you know, being a loony serial killer who distracted the media for six months from a, from a much bigger, more important story. And, you know, really this eventually led to saving lives in Britain by stopping executions. And he's lived on in film and theater. And, and I think most recently, I don't know if it was, it was a television series or a movie starring Tim Roth as John Reginald Christie. Did you see that? And what was your reaction if you did? So um, I did see it. And it's based on it's a it was a three part series from the I think it was through the BBC. And then they eventually brought it to America. It was a it was a little uh, it was a, a limited series. And Timothy um Tim Roth played John Christine, did a fabulous job. It's based on Tim Rillington Place, which is the book from Ludwig Kennedy, who was the advocate. And, of course, it, it takes the point of view that Timothy Evans was innocent and John Christie was guilty of killing Burl Evans. And Gerald Evans, which is just, to me, that's not the right answer. But cinematically, it was really interesting. Um, I think that it's it's also kind of operated under the belief that um, Ethel was under her husband's thumb and was aware or, or suspected that he killed these women, which I, I, I absolutely don't believe. I mean, she left John Christie early in their marriage for 10 years. I don't think that she would have hesitated to walk if she thought he was a serial killer. I just don't think that makes any sense. But, um, you know, that probably wouldn't have made very good theatrical drama. So... <laughs> But no, I don't agree with the premise of it, of course, no. Right. So where can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, well, I have a website, so katewinklerdawson.com, and I have a contact page there, so you know anybody can ask a question. And uh, it's got you know sort of what my background is, and there's a book trailer on there, um, and I've got some footage of the fog. And so you know that's a really good place. To start, also, I've said this on social media, 
that if someone's interested in, in picking this book for a book club, that, you know, I'm happy to appear via Skype. I'm going to be via Skype in Georgia, and I'm in Texas right now, in a couple of weeks for a book club. As long as it's, you know, five people or more, I'm happy to do that, and I can do a little Skype Q&A. Um, so, yeah, that's a good place to start is my website. Well, that's excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Kate Winkler Dawson for chatting about her book, Death in the Air, the true story of a serial killer, the great London smog, and the strangling of a city. Please don't forget, if you're making wedding plans, go to Zola.com slash Notorious for a $50 credit uh, after signing up. And this has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.